And so you have what what probably, as we read it, feels a little bit like there's some tension here. What those those passages necessitate, I believe, is is a future stage of the coming kingdom that you could say it this way, on one hand, is far greater than the present age. In other words, these passages can't be being fulfilled in the present age, and yet they still include sin and death. This is The Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to another episode of The Bible Sojourner. I am pleased to have on the program today Matthew Waymeyer from the Expositor's Seminary. Dr. Waymeyer serves on the pastoral staff at Grace Emanuel Bible Church and he also serves on the faculty at the Expositor Seminary. So Matt graduated from the Master's Seminary with his PhD in 2015, and he's taught New Testament Bible exposition at the Expositor Seminary. Matt, welcome to the Bible Sojourner. Thank you, Peter. It's good to see you again, brother. Yeah, we had you on two times before. This is actually your third time. I think I'd have to double check, but I think that means you are the most frequent visitor to the podcast. Wow. Um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you could probably just stand there in shocked uh, unbelief that we value your company so much. In fact, I I should have gone back and looked at which episodes we've done, but we had you back on the podcast about two and a half years ago, I think, to talk about infant baptism. I was on a craze of studying infant baptism. I ended up writing a book on it, but the mm-hmm. Uh, you had written a book prior to that, and you were very influential in my thinking, so had you on the podcast to talk about that. That was great. A lot of people really appreciated that. And then we also had you on to talk about part of your book, which I have here, The Millennialism and the Age to Come, which is basically a discussion of the uh, two-age model and this age and the age to come, how we should understand that. And I think that was very helpful as well. In fact, that was this is going to be your claim to fame here. Are you ready? Everything else in your life has paled in comparison to this is that was the first video that we ever uploaded to YouTube. And and you decided nonetheless to stick with the medium. Yeah, exactly. Well, it was because we crashed the system. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it was actually, we've gotten a lot of really good feedback on that. Not, and at that point it was kind of just a after, after the fact kind of thing. Hmm. But there have been a lot of people on YouTube who saw that interview and let me know that they they bought the book and that they really appreciated it. And so I'm just really encouraged by the response that we got from that. And put, putting that aside, even with that, one of the things we didn't get to at all during that interview that I really wanted to was your work on Revelation 20. And you've done a fair bit of work on that. And one of the things that I guess comes up in, in these kinds of discussions with Revelation 20, and we're going to get to, Lord willing, some of the details of, of this crucial text, is, okay, in eschatological discussions, in eschatological discussions, we have premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial viewpoints, and they all relate to this idea of millennium. So could you kind of walk us through uh, why we use those terms and why it relates to Revelation 20? Sure, sure. Well, the, the word millennium obviously just simply in itself means a thousand years. And when we when we think in terms of a biblical context, what we call the millennial debate, 
we're thinking specifically about the thousand year period, which is mentioned in Revelation 20. There's this thousand year period in which Christ reigns during this time period. And now the debate really involves really maybe two key issues would be the help, most helpful way to think about it is, is really the timing and the nature of the millennium. In other words, this thousand year period, when will it happen? So the timing of, of the millennium, and then what will it consist of? What, what's the nature of the millennium? And so what you find through the history of the church is, is that you have in this debate really three main views that have emerged, what we call premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And maybe the simplest way, I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with these terms, but here's a way that I think is helpful to kind of frame it up as I think about those three views, as I think about the relationship between the present age and this thousand year period that we see in Revelation 20. Now, premillennialism says that the present age precedes the millennium. So we have the, the present age, the second coming of Christ, and then the thousand year period. So the, the present age precedes the millennium. Uh, amillennialism says that the present age equals the millennium. So in other words, this the, the church age, the present age that we live in now, that we are in the thousand year period. It's the, the period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. So the, the present age equals the millennium. And you might say it this way, very similar to amillennialism, but postmillennialism says that the present age becomes the millennium, which again, very similar, equals the millennium, becomes the millennium. Um, both of those second two positions would say that the millennium takes place during the present age, but with the amillennialist, it extends from the, the entire time between the, the first and the second coming of Christ. And, and I like to say it in layman's terms, with the, with the amillennialist, it's what you see is what you get. But with the postmillennialism, postmillennialist, it's you ain't seen nothing yet, <laughs> because right. the idea is that the present age is becoming the millennium, and as the gospel continues to go forth with increasing success, a vast majority of the world will be Christianized, and there'll be the, there'll be peace and, and righteousness and justice up, upon the earth. So, so premillennialism, it precedes the millennium. Amillennialism, it equals the millennium. Postmillennialism, it's becoming the millennium. Which really then, I think the key question which distinguishes premillennialism from the other two, the key question is this in the debate, does Revelation 20 teach that there will be an intermediate kingdom between the second coming and the eternal state? Uh, premillennialism says yes, and amillennialism and postmillennialism says no. Premillennialism says yes, that the thousand years is future. Christ will return. There'll be a thousand-year millennial kingdom in which he reigns upon the earth, and then you have the eternal state. So there's this intermediate kingdom between the present age and the eternal state. So premillennialism says yes. Amillennialism and postmillennialism say no, that the, at the end of the thousand years, even though the two of them disagree on what will happen during those thousand years, at the end of the present age, Christ returns and immediately, no intermediate kingdom, immediately uh, introduces the eternal state. So that, in a nutshell, really is the millennial debate, a, a debate about the timing and the nature of this thousand-year period in Revelation 20. Oh, that's that's very helpful. And one of the things I would add to that, because it's a part of the post-millennial resurgence, is that a lot of times people classify, I, I like how you said, you know, nature and timing. With regard to all millennial and post-millennial, they often are in agreement with regard to 
the timing, they would both in some sense say the kingdom is now. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, for post-millennial, it's developing and increasing. Uh, and amillennial doesn't have to have that viewpoint, but at least with timing, they're in agreement. But then with regard to the nature, uh, it's interestingly enough, post-millennial and pre-millennial are often in more agreement regarding the physicality of the kingdom. Yeah. And so I think it's helpful to think, you know, th- there there are multiple you know, avenues to pr- approach this kind of conversation. And that's why when we talk about Revelation 20, it's very helpful, but you have to remember there's a lot of other things going on in the background, presuppositions yeah. that are involved and things like that. So I guess before getting into even some of those presuppositions, w- when you're talking about Revelation 20, it's such a, a crucial passage for for this discussion. And you've written on it quite a bit. You have almost I don't know, a third of your book on amillennialism and the age to come on Revelation and the issues involved there. You also wrote a book that is a little bit smaller, but deals entirely with Revelation 20 and the millennial debate. So I guess just on a, you know, maybe a a softball question to warm up, I guess, if you will, is, you know, how did you get so interested in this and why have you spent so much time thinking through it and writing on it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, it, it's funny. I'm in, in some sense, I'm an unlikely candidate for someone to have been to have spent so much time studying issues of eschatology, because when I arrived at the Master Seminary as a, as a first year student in 1995, I was completely agnostic on all of these issues. I hadn't studied them, wasn't really even convinced fully. Well, let me go back. Is I was I was saved as a freshman at university in 1989. The year before, uh, as an unbeliever, I had a well-meaning Christian friend who who came to me with that that uh, now famous book, "88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988," and and so obviously 88 came and went, and so did 89, the revision of the book, and and so early on in my Christian life, I had a little bit of a, a, a jaded, cynical view of of eschatology and prophecy and some of the sensationalism that, that often goes along with it, and so. Um, during that time, I, I started to really have a, a profound appreciation for theology and what I later discovered was Reformed theology, began to study and, and become convinced of the doctrines of grace, uh, became to uh, attend a, a PCA church. I was living in Orlando, and so I was a happy attender of a, a Presbyterian church, uh, still hadn't studied eschatology, didn't understand the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism, but but I loved the high view of God, uh, focus on the sovereignty of God and salvation. And so I was sort of having this, this personal reformation. Um, my two closest friends, my three closest friends, two of them were amillennial, one was postmillennial. Um, I, I really was uh, then looking for seminary to attend. Uh, had narrowed it down to either the Master Seminary or Westminster. Uh, the only issues that I at the time understood that divided them were the very issues that that I had never studied. And that frankly, I wasn't incredibly interested in studying because I wanted to focus on what I thought were the more important issues. In fact, uh, this is it's funny thinking back on it now, when I was visiting as a prospective student, the Master's Seminary, I sat down with Dr. Trevor Cragen, who was a systematic theology professor at the time, and I said to him, I said, um, I said, can't uh, can't we just focus on the important things like the doctrines of grace? And that was in the context of of eschatology and ecclesiology. Can't we just focus on the, the important things like the doctrines of grace? And and he, his answer was restrained, uh, but it was as profound as it was simple. 
Uh, I say restrained because he, he was so passionate about these issues. Uh, but all he said was, he said, no, not, not if we're going to understand and proclaim the whole counsel of God. We must understand these things. And I left his office that day, and this is just before I started seminary, thinking, boy, I've got a lot of work to do. And so I started seminary, I don't want to say with a blank slate, nobody's slate is completely blank, but really agnostic on these issues um, in the back of my mind. In fact, I had told my wife, we're going to start here at the Master's Seminary, but we may be transferring down the road a bit to Westminster West, depending on where I land on some of these issues. And so I would say what, what made me a student of these issues is the realization that they weren't easy to figure, they weren't easy to, to sort my way through. Uh, if you were to look at my my shelf, uh, my different the- theology sections, you would see eschatology and issues of ecclesiology, uh, covenant theology, dispensationalism, more books than any other subject, not because I'm saying definitively that that's more important than soteriology or theology proper, but because it just has taken me a lot of work to dig in and study. So I just began to to, to read all that I could on these issues. And in terms of, of Revelation 20 um, emerging, I think, as a, as a key passage, what I found is all of these books that I'm reading, taking different positions on the millennial debate and, and, and other related issues, that one passage that kept coming up again and again was Revelation 20. And so I realized at some point I'm going to need to set aside the systematic theology and, and roll up my sleeves and just dig into Revelation 20 and do some serious exegesis. And so in, during my THM program, as a student at Master's Seminary, I did a, a semester project on Revelation 20, where I just did a wide breadth of reading in terms of the different views on, on the different exegetical issues. And that just kind of launched my, my study on, uh, on, on the issue of eschatology in general, but Revelation 20 in particular, as I realized at the end of the day, our, our theology must be exegetical before it can be systematic. Uh, in fact, I think it's interesting, even Kim Riddlebarger in his book, Amillennialism, on uh, a case for Amillennialism, he he identifies Revelation 20 as, as the single most important passage on the issue of the millennium. So when you have, um, you have proponents of different views agreeing that this text is a key text, uh, that's one that you need to spend some time on. And so I kind of just launched um, launched my my uh, studies in the area. Um, I, I'm still a student. I'm still a learner. I still have a list of questions that I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling through, uh, but I now have the opportunity to do a little bit of writing on it here and there and, and teach it here at Expositor Seminary. And I'm always learning and always being spurred on to, to uh, just a greater hope in uh, the coming of Christ as a result. Oh, that's really cool. Actually, that brought back pretty much a deja vu moment because when I, when I was interviewing you on infant baptism, that was obviously another major issue that you were working through during that time. And mm. it was kind of a very similar story where you know you mentioned, yeah, I hadn't made up my mind. I really wanted to research it. And that's, I think... Well, I think that that's exactly who we need to be as Christians is, you know, go where the text leads us. And and like you said, I, I love that phrase. And I just want to reiterate it because I think that's so crucial is your exegesis has to lead to your theology. You can't let a systematic theology just, you know, drive your exegesis. And I think that yeah. that's so crucial. Well, you, you alluded to this earlier, and I want to pick your brain on this a little bit. Uh, you, you noted that Riddlebarger and others have talked about how Revelation is so crucial. Revelation 20 is such a crucial text for the millennium discussion. 
But I think some people are often at least maybe antagonistic toward the premillennial view. And they often say, well, if Revelation 20, Revelation 20 is the only text that supports your premillennial view and, you know, the entirety of scripture basically goes against it otherwise. So, yeah, you might have Revelation 20, but that's the only text. And even then it's a symbolic book and it's very figurative. So how do you expect to support a premillennial view uh, just based on that? But that's not exactly true, is it? Aren't there other texts that you would say are very instrumental in leading you down the road to premillennialism? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say um, in response to that argument that I, I think just the opposite is the case, that by the time you get to Revelation 20, that that's exactly what you've been led to expect based on the progress of Revelation starting in the, in the Old Testament and working your way through through the, 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 the scriptures. You know, I think of, you know, in particular, I think if you look at um, the Old Testament prophets, what you find are, are these, these glorious prophecies of the future reign of this coming Messiah. Uh, prophecies, you see it in passages like Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, uh, Zechariah 14, uh, Psalm 72, these prophecies which, which speak of this coming kingdom in which the Messiah will come and he will reign in peace and justice and righteousness, all the kings of the earth bowing down before him, the, the nations serving him, being blessed by him. You have the, the knowledge of the Lord and the glory of the Lord filling the earth. You have these, these, this picture of the longevity of life, lasting peace and harmony between nations. And so you have these, these, these prophecies, again, the glorious reign of the coming Messiah. But what's interesting is if you study, and, and your colleague Mike Vlock, I think, has done some really helpful study in this area. Um, but if it, when you make your way through those very same passages, what you find is the very passages which present this picture of the glorious reign of the coming Messiah. Those very passages also include features of the coming kingdom that are ultimately incompatible with what we would think of as the perfection of the eternal state. And, and I think the simplest way to put it would be that you have mixed in those prophecies, pictures or the, the, the existence of, of sin and death. And so you have what, what probably, as we read it, feels a little bit like there's some tension here. What those those passages necessitate, I believe, is is a future stage of the coming kingdom that you could say it this way, on one hand, is far greater than the present age. In other words, these passages can't be being fulfilled in the present age, and yet they still include sin and death. And so the picture isn't crystal clear. But then what happens is you, you then come to passages like, and I would cite in particular, Isaiah 24 and Zechariah 14 where I, I think you have a growing clarity with what to do with that tension. Um, Isaiah 24, you know, I think of is, is a passage that I hope is, is um, gaining sort of um, greater attention in these discussions, but I think up until more recently it had been largely ignored. But you have in Isaiah 24, uh, just to keep it simple, in verses 17 through 20, you have this prophecy of the second coming of Christ, and then in verse 21, you have this, this initial judgment that comes with the second coming, this initial judgment of God's enemies. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And so you have this initial judgment of God's enemies. 
And then what you have in verse 22, and this is very critical, is this, this lengthy incarceration of the enemies of God for a period of, quote, many days. It says they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. And so you have this second phase of punishment, this final judgment of God enemies. Well, let me say this way. You have an initial judgment of God's enemies, a period of many days, and then a final judgment of God's enemies. And so you have growing clarity in the Old Testament. Well, I think probably the clearest passage in the Old Testament which leaves us expecting this, this phase of the coming kingdom that would, that would be an intermediate kingdom pro- between the, the present age and the eternal state is Zechariah 14. Uh, Zechariah 14, I, I'm tempted to say, is as clear an Old Testament argument for premillennialism as Revelation 20 is a New Testament argument for premillennialism. What you have, again, to keep it simple, what you have in Zechariah 14, in the first 15 verses, you have the second coming of Christ. In verses 16 to 19, you have the millennial reign of Christ. So in the first 15 verses, what you have is the nations attacking Jerusalem. You have the Lord returns. He intervenes on Israel's behalf. In doing so, the Lord destroys most of Israel's enemies in the battle. He is then established in Jerusalem as king of the earth. So the Messiah has come. He's intervened. He's destroyed his enemies. He's come in judgment, and he is established in Jerusalem as king of the earth. And then verse 16 is so critical. It says this. It says, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem. So, so that first part of verse 16 is, is, is critical, Peter, because it establishes a temporal relationship that what is about to be described takes place after the second coming, because it speaks specifically of any who are left, any of these survivors of these nations that went against Jerusalem in this battle. So what will happen then? They will go up year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So you have the nations over time, as Jesus has returned, been established as king upon the earth. Okay, After that, again, verse 16 is very clear. After that takes place, you have the nations annually going to Jerusalem to worship. And then what does it say in verse 17? And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall upon them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate. So the point is this. The point is what you have in Zechariah 14 is a very clear prophecy, very clear temporal indicators that tell us both human rebellion and divine judgment will exist on the earth after the second coming of Christ during this earthly reign of Messiah. And so if that's the picture that we have in the Old Testament, 
What we find then as we move into the New Testament, and I'm just going to skip right to Revelation 20, the point is this, is that what is strongly implied, and I would say even indicated clearly in in Zechariah 14, what is strongly implied in the Old Testament prophets is then clarified and made explicit in the book of Revelation when John reveals for the first time the length of this earthly reign of Christ, this intermediate kingdom. He called it, God called it many days back in Zechariah 24, we know that it's something that'll happen Isaiah year 24. after Isaiah 24. We know that it'll happen year after year, so it's a lengthy period of time in Zechariah 14. But then when we come to Revelation 20, we have additional clarity where you have in, in Revelation 19 the second coming and then this thousand-year reign of Christ. So, so to the contrary, I would say that by the time you get to Revelation 20, rather than finding something that's incongruous with what the rest of Scripture teaches, it's precisely what one would expect if if you're to give attention to these kinds of prophecies. Yeah, that's that's really helpful to spell those things out that way. And I think I was just reminded, having read through your books multiple times, I think that that's just really well done. How you explain that and giving us a snapshot like that is is very beneficial. The way I like to typically say it to people is that. I'm a premillennialist before I get to the New Testament. The New Testament just gets me a time frame and further detail about how that works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I think of, you know, I mentioned arriving at seminary agnostic in, in, uh, on, on these issues. I remember, I'm guessing it would have been my very first semester, Old Testament survey. I think it was it split into two semesters. You read through the entire Old Testament three times. And I remember that, that being so critical and so foundational to what I would later come to call premillennial dispensational premillennialism is that there is a future for Israel. There will be a future restoration of Israel and there will be this, this coming earthly kingdom of Messiah um, at the time that he returns. And that was like you said, by spending time in the old Testament so that what I, what I then um, find in revelation 20, certainly brings greater clarity to the details and 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 some of what we would um, expect to happen during that time but it's perfectly in line with what proceeds yeah it's hard to it's hard to embrace a different eschatological viewpoint if you know the ins and outs of the prophets and you hold to a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic right right and those two things have to go hand in hand cuz technically yeah. if you're going to depart from authorial intent or a literal understanding of the prophets, you can make it mean other things. But if you're holding both of those hand in hand, it essentially mandates a premillennial yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. In fact, I, I told the, the guys in my, my eschatology class this semester, as we talked about some of the hermeneutical foundations at, that lead to a divide on some of these issues is, you know, in, in, in previous, maybe a previous generation talked a lot about the literal hermeneutic. And I understand the importance of that term, the implications for the discussion. But I think almost a more helpful way to think of it is this, is if you affirm the sufficiency of the grammatical historical method of interpretation for understanding the, the divinely intended meaning of the Old Testament, you're going to, that's going to be the critical dividing issue there. Um, that if you, if your goal is to understand what did the original author communicate to the original audience in that original context, in one sense, at the risk of oversimplifying it, that just about settles the issue. 
Yeah, that's that's so true. I think it was. If I hope I'm not misremembering this, but I think it was Bruce Compton from Detroit. I heard an interview with him one time, and he said he doesn't like using the term literal just because so many people have misunderstood that. You know, people you know get upset with dispensationalists saying, "Well, you don't." believe Jesus is literally a door and stuff like that. Right. Right. But I think the term that he uses, which I think is good because it's, it's understood even outside biblical studies would be originalist, you know, with the debates about constitutional law and things like that is an originalist says the constitution of America, we're using that as an example, was written in an original setting and the authorial intent of what they originally designed it to do. That's how we do need to interpret it. And then that's kind of the same framework in how we read scripture. We need to understand it in its original context, originality and originalist framework of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a, yeah, I think he he covered that in a journal article in Detroit. Uh, yeah. Detroit's so, journal. Yeah. I think, I think he's doing good work over there. Well, yeah. I want, I want to do some uh, details on revelation. Uh, Cause I think this is, this is really important. And a lot of people are scared to dabble in these things. So hopefully you can lend us some aid. <laughs> Um, when we look at revelation 20, it obviously doesn't come just out of nowhere. There, there's a context there. And in fact, in your book, you say that this is, uh, this is the crux of the debate on the timing of the millennium, understanding the chronological relationship between revelation 19 and revelation 20. So can you just explain a little bit why you say that and why that relationship between 19 and 20 is so crucial? Sure. Yeah. Well, as you read through the book of Revelation, obviously what you find is the Apostle John recording uh, a divinely inspired description of visions that were shown to him by the Holy Spirit. And so you you it's a friend of mine referred to Revelation as the book of Revelation is almost like future history. And so you have all of these events being recorded happening. And so when you come to Revelation 19 and moving into chapter 20, there are basically two views about the chronology. Uh, there is what we would call the sequential view of the chronology, that the events in 19 precede and are then followed by the events of chapter 20 and into 21. That would be the sequential view. And then what's called the recapitulation view, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. But the reason that I, I think the issue of chronology is so important is because what you find in Revelation 19 in verses 11 through 21 is the second coming of Christ. So just think about this big picture. Chapter 19, the second coming. Chapter 20, the millennial reign. Chapters 21 and 22, the eternal state. So already you can begin to appreciate the importance of the issue of chronology. If, in fact, the events will happen in the future as they're described in these visions, then what do you have? You have the second coming, followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ, followed by the eternal state, which is another way of saying premillennialism. Um, and mm-hmm. so the issue really, in one sense, if you affirm that the, the second half of chapter 19 describes the second coming, which almost all amillennials would do, I, I think postmillennialists, it's hard to, I, I've really done a lot more study on what do amillennialists how do they understand Revelation 20? Then postmillennials are a little harder to nail down. But but an amillennialist like Anthony Hokema, who would be sort of a go-to guy, at least in a generation ago, he, he would say that everything's riding on the chronology. 
that if the events of chapter 20 follow the events of 19, then the Bible teaches premillennialism. So the question then becomes, well, what does the amillennials do with that? How, how do they understand the chronological relationship? Well, amillennials would take what's known as a recapitulation view. They would see the second coming of Christ at the end of 19, and then chapter 20, verse 1, they would say recapitulates. It goes back in time to the beginning of the present age so that the thousand years recapitulate, sort of give a different camera angle on the same time period of the present age. So you'd have this, this um, sharp break in chapter 20, verse 1, where it's not a sequential chronology, but rather what you have is a sharp break going back in time to the beginning of the present age. And so in one sense, the the entire debate rests on that chronological debate. Put it another way, the amillennials must be able to prove that there's a chronological break at the point of chapter 20, verse 1, or else abandon as amillennialism, if I can put it very simply. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. I think when you when you mentioned one of the things that stuck in my mind when you were, when you're talking about that is, and and part of the reason it stuck in my mind because Mike Flock has been telling this repeatedly at different points is that it's very difficult it's very difficult to argue that Revelation 19 is not the second coming of Christ. You're basically yeah. running an uphill battle there. So that's almost yeah that's almost as sure as you can get on on an issue within especially within revelation i mean just everything that's described there right and revelations 19's connections to uh the old testament and and so thinking about thinking about you know the wording that's used there and that that's a pretty firm starting point and then so as you're as you're painting that that picture i think it is helpful to to think about okay you can have recapitulation that that that's one view that's often brought out, but chronological aspect seems, well, at least if we're taking most biblical books out there, uh, chronological sequence is the most natural way. I'm not saying that there aren't other books of the Bible that depart from that, but that would be the most natural way of reading those texts. So maybe could you, oh, it depends on how, I don't know how much detail you want to go in on this, but can you give maybe like a few reasons as to, um, you know, how, how people often try to view revelation 20 as kind of like you mentioned recapitulation, but Mm -hmm. you know, your counter arguments or, or why we should view it as chronological sequence, which should be our default anyway. Yeah, I I would say this, Peter, and and let me just build off something you mentioned just prior to your question is I I do think that's going to be helpful if if, if some of your listeners are thinking about the book of Revelation and it's intimidating and they, they feel like they have to figure the entire book out in order to study this issue of Revelation 20. I do think it may be helpful to, to remind them of just what we've said is that the second half of Revelation 19, if, if you want to look for maybe two places in the entire book of Revelation that there's a pretty decent consensus, it's that chapters 21 and 22 are the eternal state. And it's that the second half of Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ. Now, again, I know there are post-millennial exceptions to that, um, but that's helpful because it really does bring some simplicity to the issue of, the, of, of studying the millennial debate in Revelation 20 is you're simply in one sense asking yourself, are there clear indicators in the text which tell us that chapter 20 verse 1 
sort of put the brakes on and go back in time to the beginning of the present age. Um, and, and, and I would, you know, and what you have throughout the book of Revelation are this, I mentioned earlier, this series of visions that, that oftentimes are introduced with the words, and I saw, and I saw it. It's kai edan usually in the Greek, and I saw. In fact, three times in the second half of, of Revelation 19, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And then you come to the same thing in chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw. And so, same words, kai edan, and I saw. Usually in the book of Revelation, this introductory formula, and I saw, indicates what we would call historical progression, this a chronological order. Um, there are a few exceptions, but I would say is this, there's a heavy burden of proof. If you see a break from a sequential relationship, there has to be absolutely clear, compelling evidence that that presses you to to affirm that kind of break what i would say is what you find is just the contrary is is what you find are as you kind of trace from revelation 19 into verse or into chapter 20 several sort of i like to think of them as chronological threads that can be traced from 19 and into 20 that that tie it together as as a sequential chronological relationship um, maybe the easy, well, not the easiest, but maybe one of them would be the uh, the satanic deception. Now I'm going back a little bit, but if you, if you look at if you read through Revelation 12 through 19, so the preceding eight chapters, what you'll find is this future narrative repeatedly highlights the deception of the nations. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 9, you have Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, being cast down to earth. He has a short time. He enlists the beast and the false prophet. And in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 19, deception, 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 planao is the Greek verb, planao, 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 planao. You have this work of satanic deception. When you get to chapter 20, verse 3, the binding of Satan, now you're into chapter 20, it says that Satan is locked in the abyss so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Now that any longer there tells us that it's interrupting this deception that had already been taking place. And so what you see is, again, I look at this as a chronological thread. You have this historical progression in which the binding in chapter 20 is designed to halt this very deception that's been repeatedly described in chapters 12 to 19. The illustration I, I use is if you're reading a narrative that, that, that that's a real simple illustration that said, the dog barked at the cat, the dog barked at the cat, the dog barked at the cat, the dog barked at the cat. Then the man locked the dog in the basement so that it would no longer bark at the cat. You, you would see at that chronological thread that this is a sequence. And so I think in the same way that that any longer ties together the preceding chapters and shows that there's a, 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 a historical progression, there's chronology, there's a sequence of events. You know, I think, I think secondly, maybe the, the description of the lake of fire. And, you know, I think of the progression at the end, at the second coming of Christ in chapter 19, verse 20, Remember, what do you have there, among other things, the defeat of the nations, but you have the, the beast and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire. 
Then you move into chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Satan sealed in the abyss for a thousand years. Verse 7, he's released. Verses 8 and 9, he attacks Jerusalem. He's defeated from fire on high. And then in chapter 10, what happens to Satan? He's cast into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet already are. And so I would look again, that as a chronological thread that here's what happens to them, here's what now happens to Satan, he's cast into the lake of fire where they previously had been cast a thousand years earlier. Uh, and then lastly, um, well, not, well, at least in terms of these chronological threads, I'm actually leading up to what I think is the strongest reason, and I'm not there yet, but, but, but you know, I also think of the messianic reign of Christ. You know, in, in, you know, we talked about the second half of Revelation 19 as being the second coming of Christ, what you find in verse 15 is a really interesting statement where John is quoting Psalm 2. But he but he 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 what he says in, in Revelation 19, verse 15 is that at the time of the second coming, he uses three verbs in verse 15. The first and the third verbs are present tense verbs that deal with the judgment that's being meted out in the moment. So he's coming with judgment. The middle verb is a future tense verb. It stands out. Uh, that verb is that he will rule them with a rod of iron. And so here, here is John describing the second coming, quoting Psalm 2, saying he's coming in judgment and he will rule future. He will rule future from the time of the second coming. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And then what's the thread? How is it picked up in chapter 20? Well, in verses 4 to 6, it speaks of Christ reigning for a thousand years. And so again, and there are more that we could point out, but you have these chronological threads that are woven throughout that that, that really hold tight this historical, uh, future history, but this future historical progression of events that, that indicate a sequential relationship. Now, all that said, I think the biggest reason to see a chronological progression is really the content of the visions themselves in chapters 20 verses 1 to 6. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look at the binding of Satan, and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this eventually in this, in this podcast, but the binding of Satan cannot be a present reality. It must be future. And then the first resurrection must be a physical resurrection, and therefore it must be future. So the point is this, what you have is Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ, and then these visions portraying both the binding of Satan and the first resurrection and reign of the tribulation martyrs, which must be future, which which argues strongly against any kind of recapitulation. In other words, if the binding of Satan and the first resurrection are incompatible with the present state, then it can't be recapitulation. It can't be a review of the present age from a different camera angle. So again, the very the very passage in question itself, I think, um, makes makes it clear that there must be a an historical, sequential, chronological progression from chapter 19, the second coming, chapter 20, the millennial reign, chapter 21 and 22, you have the eternal state. That's that's good. And one thing I want to reiterate there is, is I think the way that you're arguing for that, first of all, I think that's really good. And I don't know if I just totally forgot this from your book or you just said it in a way that I hadn't thought about before, but I loved the connection there with the deception being pointed out 
the devil's deceiving, deceiving, deceiving. And then that uh, inner textual connection within the book of Revelation saying, but this isn't happening in Revelation 20. I think that's so key there to recognize that there is a distinction there, a difference being made. Uh, this isn't just a normal everyday, you know, recapitulation kind of idea of what has already been talked about. But just to reiterate what we've been talking about is I think just the way that you're taking a straightforward reading of Revelation 20, that's fitting with the definition that we already have from the Old Testament with regard to the coming, the judgment, and then the reign of Christ. I think that yeah. that just fits very well, and it just starts to expand and explore that in more detail, which is always the premillennial argument. It's not that we're coming up with something new in Revelation 20. It's that we have the definitions, and now we're filling in some of the details with Revelation 20. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I think in some of uh, Mike Block's articles, he even sets up a chart where he sort of holds side by side passages like Isaiah 24, Zechariah 14, and Revelation 20, and you just follow the events. They're exactly what you would expect if you've read these previous passages with, with carefulness. Well, due to the length of this interview, we're going to stop things right there for right now, and you're going to have to wait till next time to hear part two. So if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do so so you get notified when the second part drops. But if you want more information about Matt Wehmeyer, you can visit expositors.org to find out about Expositors Seminary. If you want information about Shepherd's Theological Seminary, where I teach, you can visit shepherds.edu. And if you want more information about the blog or the podcast, you can visit petergaiman.com. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.